Our sermon today is taken from Romans 5, verse 12 to 14. Here's the word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Thus says the Lord. Friends, today we are back in our series through the book of Romans, and after four weeks of being in the Psalms, a book that is by nature more poetic and more heartfelt, perhaps uh, today we're entering back into Romans, a book which in many ways is a lot more technical uh, compared to Psalms, especially the passage that we're in today. I think this passage is particularly technical and philosophical even in comparison to the rest of Romans. And that's why I only chose to preach on three verses in this particular section because there's already so much to cover just in those three short verses. So in order to understand what Paul is trying to teach us here in verses 12 to 14 of Romans chapter 5, we have to look at it through the overall thought and perspective of Romans chapter 5 as a whole, okay? And if you remember... Paul, in Romans chapter 5, is trying to assure the Christians in Rome that their salvation is secure. That was Paul's overarching goal for this chapter, that their eternal fate is secure because of what Christ did for them on the cross, right? Christ lived a perfect life, and on that cross, he gave us, he transferred unto us, he spread unto us this perfect righteousness that he has. That's the gospel, that's why we're saved. That's why we have eternal security, because somehow there's a connection between Jesus and us, Christians, that allows his righteousness to somehow transfer over to me. And the reason why Paul wanted these Roman Christians to really grasp the reality of their eternal salvation deeper is so that they can better handle their present trials that they were in. My wife, uh, for the first time, is rereading the Harry Potter book series. And if you know uh, the Harry Potter book series, there are seven books in the series. And as she's rereading them, she can't stop telling me how different it feels now, rereading books one to six, having known how book seven ends. Because that's what happens. You know, knowing the end always changes the way you view the present. And, and that's what Paul's goal was here in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. And now, in chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, he still has the same goal. The difference is, here in these three verses, he gets down to the minute details as, as to why the work of Christ can save us. How can one man's obedience make many people righteous? Like, like, how does that work? You know, Jesus was the one who did all the righteous acts. Why can the credit of his accomplishments somehow transfer over or spread over to me? Like, how does it make that jump? And understanding the how, Paul believes, will cause Christians, you and I, to rest even deeper in the assurance of our salvation. Okay? So, okay, how does it work? How can the good works that Jesus did spread to me 
someone who did not personally do these good works. Okay? Again, it's going to get a bit technical and a bit philosophical here because in order to answer that question, Paul kind of has to explain the whole worldview, the whole system of reality that God has created that makes it possible that the deeds of one man to transfer over to the many. Okay, let's get to it. There's three things I want to point out from the passage. Point one, all humans are interconnected. Point two, that's why Adam's sin killed us. Point three, that's why Jesus' obedience saves us. All humans are interconnected. That's why Adam's sin killed us. That's why Jesus' obedience saves us. First point, all humans are interconnected. So let's start at verse 12. Let's take a look at it. Therefore, Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, from the get-go here, you immediately see that there must be some kind of interconnection here between the one man, referring to Adam, and all of us. Adam's sin somehow, verse 12 said, spread to all of us. But how? Like, how does that happen? You can't just say it happens without giving a reason for it. How can the disobedience of one man spread to many? Where is the connection point between Adam and us? Now, many Christians, I think, would say this. Well, you know, that's easy. Here's a connection point. When Adam sinned, he corrupted his human nature, and because we're all made out of that corrupted human nature, we all continually sin today. Right? That, that's the connection between Adam and us. And, and that is the classic answer. Adam sinned, he corrupted the human nature, and because we're birthed out of him, we are also corrupt and we also sin today. And that's not wrong. That is a biblical point. It's just not the point Paul is trying to make here. Paul here is trying to say something quite different. And how do we know that? Notice Paul's use of the past tense here in verse 12. And this is key if you really want to understand this passage to, to pay attention to this. Notice the past tense. Paul says sin came into the world through one man. Past tense, right? It came into the world, referring to Adam's sin in the past in the garden. Sin came into the world through one man, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Past tense again. Paul uses the past tense here again to describe everyone else's sin, meaning that somehow when Adam sinned, past tense, in the garden in the past, everyone also sinned, past tense, with him in the garden in the past. See, if Paul was trying to make the point that we sin because Adam has corrupted our natures, which then causes us to sin today, he wouldn't have used the past tense, or in the Greek, the aorist tense. He would have used the present tense. He would have said, sin came into the world through one man, so death spread to all men because all sin, as in our current corrupt natures today, causes us to continually sin today, presently. But Paul did not use the present tense. He used the past tense. When Adam sinned, we all sinned too. It's as if somehow, when Adam sinned back then, you and I somehow sinned in the garden with him. Now, isn't that weird? Tim Keller in his Bible study in the book of Romans comments on this and says this use of the aorist tense in the Greek or the past tense in the English shows that the whole race sinned in Adam's one single past action. And that is interesting. 
isn't it? You know, how can you and I, who didn't even exist back then, sinned, past tense, when Adam sinned? Now, this should tell you something about the reality of human relationships, doesn't it? It must mean that somehow, though we are diverse and separate from Adam, yet at the same time, we are in some ways united and one with him. It must mean that amidst the diversity, uh, the separation between us and Adam, there is yet a unity between us and Adam, or else we couldn't have sinned when Adam sinned. And I I get it. I I realize this presents all kinds of problems, especially to our modern minds, right? Like, how is that even fair? (laughs) You know, how, how can the act of sin done by someone else in the past, before I was even born, be accounted to me? I, I don't like that. And I get that. And we'll get to the bottom of the problem of fairness later. But, but for now, whether you like it or not, <laughs> let me give us a rationale as to why this diversity in unity pattern between us humans, in fact, between all creation, it's a reality we can't escape, okay? And since we're talking about Adam, let's go back to Genesis 1, when God first made everything. You see this pattern of diversity in unity all over Genesis 1, when God first created everything, okay? When God made everything in Genesis 1, we see that he creates them in sets. He created diverse things, but yet all those diverse things belonged to one unified category. For example, when God made the sea creatures, they were created, Genesis 1 says, according to its kind. Meaning, there are many diverse types of sea creatures, right? Salmon, I don't know if salmon's a sea creature, salmon's a freshwater fish, so never mind that. Sharks, uh, whales, planktons, I don't know. There are many different kinds of sea creatures, diverse, yet they're all still of one kind, namely sea creatures. The birds in the sky were also being described, uh, was described in Genesis 1 as being made according to its kind, right? So meaning there are different kinds of birds, eagles, uh, pigeons, woodpeckers, I don't know. There are different kinds of birds, right? But yet, they are of one unified category, namely birds. Animals on the land, also created again with the phrase, according to their kind. Vegetation, described as being created according to its kind. In fact, guess how many times the phrase, according to its kind, which emphasizes the reality of diversity and unity, Guess how many times that phrase appears in Genesis chapter 1? Ten times. You, you think that's a coincidence? Or do you think the author is trying to tell us something? And then, of course, human beings were created. And guess how many kinds of human beings existed in this one category of human beings? Two kinds. So God created man, humans, in his own image, male and female, he created them. Two categories in one united. Two, uh, two different uh, persons in one category. So, so we see here what Genesis is trying to tell us. The animal kingdom, uh, the pattern of human relationships, in fact, all of creation, is modeled after this pattern of diversity in unity, a pattern that the author made sure we got by repeating the phrase ten times. But let me just take it a step further and indulge me here a bit. I realize this is quite a sidetrack. But this reality of diversity and unity, we see that not only in Scripture, we see that in everyday life. 
Think about mathematics. Now, I'm, I'm terrible at math, but hopefully at least I can talk about the philosophy behind math, okay? Think about this. The laws of math cannot exist unless the concept of diversity and unity exists. What do I mean? Okay. If I ask you right now to count how many screens are in your room, how many screens are there? In order to do that, what you must do in your head, you have to immediately pinpoint diverse items in your room that has screens on them, let's say TV, laptop, and phone. But yet, in order to do that, you must also understand that these three diverse items belong to the one category of things with screens. That's why you can count them. <laughs> That's why we, have, we can count, because we're all governed by the law of diversity and unity. Without that concept, we won't be able to even count. If you counted five spoons on the table, how are you able to do that? Because you've identified there are five different items on the table, but yet they all belong to this one category of spoons. You know, there are 10 cows in the farm, and so on. The reason why the law of mathematics can exist at all is because the whole world, in fact, reality itself, is governed by the pattern of diversity in unity. So back to our passage. How is it that when Adam sinned, we sinned too at the same moment? It's because the reality of diversity in unity is the basis of all creation, including the relationship of the human race. That although we are separate individuals than Adam, somehow our moral and legal standing before God is one with him. That's why, in a very real sense, when he sinned in the garden as our representative, we all sinned as well. But I'm not him, he might say, and I know you're a separate individual but yet you belong in the one category of humanity in which he represents. But I gotta push one step deeper here. Why is that the pattern of reality? Why is the pattern of diversity and unity the way things are in the world? Because, you know, it, it kinda sucks that Adam, our representative, is so closely interconnected with us because then his sin becomes my sin. Why does reality have to be this way? Can it be patterned differently? Well, because think about who it was that created everything. Who is our creator? God. And who is God? We just read it in, our, in the Westminster Confession, a shorter uh, catechism earlier in our statement of faith. Question six. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. All of creation, the animal kingdom, the human race, mathematics, reality itself is all modeled after the pattern of diversity and unity because the one who created all of it is the ultimate diversity and unity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our triune God, three in one. Herman Boving, an old and very influential theologian, said that this idea of diversity and unity is not fiction. This reality is precisely that which respects the triune and relational shape of God's image. And because diversity and unity is how things are, that's why when 
Adam, our representative, lost his moral purity and lost his innocence before God in the garden, all of humanity in which he represents, united in him as one, lost our moral purity and innocence as well back then, past tense, in the garden. And that is how the sin of Adam spread over to all of us immediately in this one act, which leads us to our second point. That's why Adam's sin killed us. See, and I totally, I, I totally get how this reality of diversity and unity, it doesn't really sit well with our, with our modern minds, right? If we're going to be punished, we want to be punished for our own mistakes. And if we're going to be rewarded, we want to be rewarded for our own accomplishments. That's how we think today, and, and I, I get that. But Paul, look, look here in verse 13 to 14, he, he destroys this modern way of thinking, and he tells us that we were actually punished in Adam before we personally broke any laws ourselves. Look at verse 13. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. The law here referring to the Ten Commandments, right, that God wrote down and gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, before Exodus chapter 20, there was no written laws like this. So, so technically, there were no written laws to break in between Adam in Genesis 3 and Moses in Exodus chapter 20, right? But yet, Paul continues in verse 14, yet death still reigned from Adam to Moses. What Paul is trying to say here is that even though no one broke any written laws during that time period because there's no laws written yet to break, yet they still experienced the consequences of sin, which is death. People still died in that period. Why do you think that is, Paul is asking us here? Well, back to his point in verse 12, because in Adam, they all already sinned even before they themselves personally broke any written laws. In other words, you and I are not sinners because we break God's laws. We break God's laws because we are sinners. A liar doesn't become a liar when they get caught lying. They've been a liar all along. Getting caught just proves it. The Ten Commandments, all it did is catch us as sinners. We've been sinners all along. The second, Adam sinned. Now, this betrays our modern individualistic sense of justice. I, I, I get that because we live in a culture where we want to be identified and treated according to our own accomplishments or our own mistakes, right? Not by someone else's. I, I get that. But look, th that's just not how life works. Our identity in everyday life, it's very intertwined with one another, especially with those who represent us in their actions. Somehow their actions find a way to infuse into us. That's why at times we get embarrassed at our parents. Right? I'm just counting down the days when I become embarrassing to my daughter Elena. You know, right now I'm her hero. Of course, she's four. Who I am in her four-year-old brain is not who I really am in, in real life. I'm counting out the days where one day, you know, she'll get to that point where she can identify my sin, and I'm going to say or do something in public that perhaps might produce embarrassment in her. And we've experienced that, right? All parents have done something to where the child says, you know, oh my goodness, I can't believe you said that, you know, and we truly feel embarrassed. But why? Why do you feel a sense of shame when you're not the one who committed the act? You know, because like it or not, that's reality. Our identity is very much intertwined with the identity of our representatives. That's why if you're married, when your husband or wife says something or does something embarrassing in front of other people, you instinctively feel this need to micromanage their behavior. <laughs> Come on, we all do it. 
And if you don't do it, it's because you hold yourself back from doing it a lot. Why is that? Why do we have that impulse to micromanage our spouse's words and actions sometimes? Because we don't want to be embarrassed. But why are you embarrassed? You're not the one doing those things. They are. Because our identity is very much bound with theirs. And it's true even outside of the family system. You know, and I'm going to use America as an example here, just because I feel like um, it's been most felt in this country in the present uh, decade compared to other countries. If you're American, how you feel about being American and how other people view you as an American drastically changed in Obama's era and in Trump's era. Whether you're a Republican or Democrat, that's beside the point. Both parties still felt the shift. But why? You didn't do anything. But yet, why do you feel a shift in your identity as an American? Because the pattern of diversity and unity has been weaved to the fabric of humanity, family, societies, reality itself. Our representatives affect us in one way or another. And you know, before we say, you know, that's unfair, I don't like that. The system of diversity and unity that God has set in place, you know, that's just unjust. You know, hold on a second. And, and remember, the system works both ways. If you happen to have great parents, who are well thought of and deeply loved in your community, you experience the benefits of that too. You feel a sense of pride that comes simply from being their child. It's not a pride that comes of who you are, but because of who they are. And other people more likely will identify you in a more favorable light because you are the children of those great people, you see. If your spouse is a kind and amazing person, you benefit from that too. If your president is competent, well loved, you're affected too. See. But when it works in our favor, we don't think twice about it. We don't call it unjust. Here's what I want to propose. Our actual problem with this reality of diversity and unity that God has set in place is not that it's unfair, but that it makes us feel powerless. Because all of a sudden, our bubbles are popped, and we realize that we are not the sole masters of our own fate. As much as we want to think that we are, we're not. We're very much united with and impacted by those who represent us, whether in a smaller scale of things like our parents or in the larger scale of things like our innocence before God. And we want to be the masters of our own fate, don't we? Because it gives us a sense of control, and it allows us to claim the credit and the glory for any personal accomplishments and triumphs that we've accomplished. But the reality of diversity and unity isn't set up for us to claim the glory. It's set up for our representatives to claim the glory, which leads us to our last point. That's why Jesus' obedience saves us. After Paul very efficiently <laughs> lays out in just two and a half verses this whole system of diversity and unity, which explains how Adam's sin spread to us, Paul deems us now ready to truly grasp what happened at Calvary. Which is why he says in the end of verse 14 that Adam is only a type of the one who was to come. Who is that? Well, if you read the rest of chapter 5, we know that Paul here is talking about Jesus. Adam is a type of Jesus. And what Paul is trying to say here is that the way that Jesus' righteousness spreads to us is the same way that Adam's sin spread to us. There's a correlation there. If in Adam, his sin truly is our sin, in Christ, 
His righteousness is truly our righteousness. And if in Adam we all truly sinned when he sinned, in Christ we all truly obeyed when he obeyed. That's what salvation is. That's how you're saved. Do you know what actually happened when you received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in your heart, you did the prayer and you became a Christian or whatever? You know what actually happened? What actually happened is that you switched representatives. You're no longer represented by Adam and what he did, but rather you're represented by Christ and what he did. See, it's easy to fall into this misunderstanding of the gospel. You know, we often, I think, view God the Father like, like the Godfather, you know, like, like, like in the movies, you know. If someone impresses him or if someone does something for him, he then gives that person a favor in return, right? And we often think of Jesus Christ, who lived this perfect life on earth and impressed the Father with his purity uh, as, as, you know, being somebody who impressed the Father. And he asked a favor to the Father saying, hey, you know, since I've done all these things for you, you know, can you cut my people some slack? And that's how we think about it, right? Because Jesus is a righteous person, the Father therefore listened to him, and that's why we're saved, because the Father was kind of doing Jesus a favor. But that's not the gospel. You're not saved because the Father felt indebted to Jesus. You are saved because every act of obedience Jesus ever did spread over to you when you accepted him as Lord and Savior. His purity, his righteousness, his perfection now identifies you. I've, I've always liked this analogy, although it, it's not the most accurate one because it does blur the distinction that we have between us and Jesus a little too much, I think, but, but it gets a point across. Just don't take it too far. A pastor once illustrated this point by saying that when you get to heaven one day, uh, people there are going to come up to you and they're going to say, man, you know, that was such a noble thing that you did, you know, feeding the 5,000. Just well done. You know, that, that was very kind of you to do that. And you're going to look at him weird. You're going to say, uh, I never did that. <laughs> and that person's going to look at you and he's going to say, well, your record says that you did that. Here, it says right here. Also, the way you cared for those tax collectors and those prostitutes, you know, the way you took your time out of your busy day and cared for the outcasts of your city, and you built a relationship with them, and you shared the gospel to them, even when everyone else was judging you for it. Man, that was just amazing. And you're going to tell them, I never did that either. And they're going to say, yeah, you did. <laughs> it says right here. And the way you kept your mouth shut, you know, even when the whole world was gossiping about you and wrongfully uh, lying about you, you never said a word back to hurt them. Unbelievable. And the way you remained patient with your closest friends, even when they abandoned you when you needed them the most. The way you constantly forgave people all the time. The way you loved the people that hated you the most, even to the point of death. Amazing. And you're going to say, what are you talking about? You don't know me at all. I'm not that good. I never did any of those things. And at that moment, Jesus Christ, standing in between you and the throne of God, with scars of the cross still upon his body, will say, yes, you did. Yes, you did. You did all those things because I now 
represent you. And everything I've done has been accredited to you. God doesn't love you because he owed Jesus a favor. God loves you because when he sees you, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ. Because when you received him as your representative, though separate from him, your life became wholly bound to his. That's why you have an assurance of salvation. You know how your story is going to end in this world? You do. You do, because it's going to end in the same way Jesus' story did. This, this COVID, you know, this crisis we're constantly in that comes and goes, this looming darkness we're all in, you know how the story ends. It ends in triumphant resurrection because that's how Jesus' story ended, and now he represents you. And knowing the end always changes the way you view the present. But there's something more. Unlike Adam, who broke something good, Jesus had to redeem something broken. And because of that, unlike Adam, for Jesus Christ to represent you, the transfer, you see, had to go two ways. In his union with us, yes, his righteousness identifies us, but our sinfulness also identified him. That's why he died the death he did on a cross. Because for us to be united with him, it brings us righteousness, but it brought him death. That was his cost for being your representative. What a gospel. What a savior. So let me end here. If you're not a Christian today and you're listening to this message, I hope you hear the invitation that this passage is giving you. It's saying, do not wait until you're able to obey before accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The bad news is that in Adam, you were punished before you personally broke any written laws. And the good news is that in Jesus, you can have salvation before you personally obeyed any written laws. Why? So that the glory of your salvation goes to Jesus, your representative, and not to you. Let him represent you. I bid you to do not approach God representing yourself. You will die. Let Jesus and his righteousness represent you. Let him be your plea. And if you're a Christian today and you're hearing this message, I hope Paul's purpose here is, is accomplished. I hope you now will live your life with a deeper sense of rest in the assurance of your salvation that is not based on your personal ability to obey, but on the perfection of Jesus Christ, your representative. And now you may still fall into sin, of course, and you may be shocked of how long it's taking for some of these old habits to go away. And, and by all means, keep fighting them. Keep waging war against them. But also, for crying out loud, rest. Rest. Your salvation is not found in your perfect obedience, but in the perfect obedience of your representative, Jesus Christ.
And God loves you in the way he loves Christ because although you're separate from him, you are in him and he is in you. Rest. Now, usually I uh, end my sermons by praying for us, but today I want to end a bit differently. I still want to pray, but instead of praying my own prayer, I want to read one of Jesus' prayers that he prayed in John chapter 17. I think it's a good end note to the concept of diversity and unity that, that we learn today and how it relates to our salvation. Okay, so let's, let's do that right now. Pray with me. Jesus said in John chapter 17, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. And I do not ask for these people only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen.